praying not only for you online, but for everybody, everybody that's here, that you uh, are healthy and uh, well this morning. And welcome back if you've been gone for an extended period of time or got a little getaway uh, down on the river. We welcome you guys back, and uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, We're glad that we're all here together uh, to worship and praise the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, We've been examining several different uh, ways that God grows us in our faith. Uh, We've been doing this now for quite a few weeks, and uh, how, how, how God can make us stronger as believers, as Christ followers, what are some of the elements he uses? What are what are some of the ways that God chooses to strengthen me and you and all of us together in our faith? And uh, last week, last week we looked at an interesting one. As much as um, by its definition, it can have a uh, it can go multiple ways. But last week we looked at this idea of freedom and how actually God uses freedom. And the idea of freedom to uh, grow us in our faith. And the real freedom that we experienced, the real freedom that we talked about last week was not necessarily the red, white, and blue, wrap ourselves in the flag of America freedom, but it's the freedom from sin. It's the freedom from the penalty of sin that Jesus provided. It's the freedom from the power of sin, which is life through the Spirit. And... Uh, freedom from the presence of sin, which is, for those of us who are still standing upright and taking air, uh, that freedom from the presence of sin will come in the future, as Paul says in the book of Romans. So we've been studying this out of uh, Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to regard it, I know many biblical scholars regard Romans chapter 8 as the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. The greatest chapter in the whole Bible. Today we're going to carry on in Romans 8. We're going to be here for this week and for next week. And we're going to switch the paradigm a little bit in as much as we're not going to talk about freedom. But we're going to talk about a word that, that, that when you first hear this word, you kind of go, eh, ee, ee. Right? Can you guys do that? Go, eh. Stick your tongue out on the next one and say, eh. Nobody's sticking their tongues out. Come on. I know you're doing it at home. I can see you at home, right? Nobody likes this word, but it's critical to your faith. It's critical to you growing in Christ. That's the word suffering. That's the word suffering. And we don't suffer without purpose. We suffer with purpose uh, because we're going to be suffering for glory. And we do suffer if we're suffering justly. And rightly, biblically, we're suffering for glory, right? Not our own glory, the glory of the Lord. But how does suffering, the question we want to start with, just like we had start a lot of these sermons, how does suffering make us stronger Christians? How does suffering for Christ, how does suffering in your faith, how does it make us, how does God use it to make us stronger believers? Perhaps you've been stumped when somebody's asked you this question. Maybe somebody's asked you this. Why would a good and loving God allow all the pain and suffering in the world? That's a hard question to answer. There's a lot of ways that you can go with that question. But how do you answer that question? And I want to underscore this. 
many people that are not believers, many people reject Christianity because they don't get a definition of, they don't get an answer to this question. Many people out there that says, you know what? I, I can't follow a God like that because I don't understand how God can be loving and still allow pain and suffering in this world. So they abandon faith. Maybe they grew up in a church, grew up in a Christian home, and they say, yeah, I don't think so. Maybe they're out there and they just see what's going on in our world. They see the, the uh, appalling things that have happened throughout all of history. And they say, "Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't go with that. I can't go with that." And so, how do you answer that question? I think it's, I think it's one of the fundamental questions that all believers need to have an answer to, need to understand, need to have a response for, is why would a good and loving God allow the pain and suffering in this world? Oftentimes, we reply with these typical type of answers. Uh, we kind of blame it on our forefathers, not the ones that started our country. Further back than that, we will say something like this. Well, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, sin entered the world. So that's, that's one aspect of it, which is true. Not complete, but true. Maybe it's this. It's maybe it's uh, the idea of well, it's people that cause all the pain and suffering, so people are ultimately the problem. So if we limit the number of people, or if we can arrange all the people, or create a mindset that all the people would go with, we could end pain and suffering. We all know, and we're all kind of looking up here saying, yeah. <laughs> That has not worked. Where that's been tried, it's actually made it worse. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's this old-fashioned word called greed. Maybe our response or our tendencies or the things that we hear about this idea of suffering wrap around this ideology that people are greedy and the poor get hurt because of rich people's greed. That's pretty popular mentality these days by many. That it's the greedy's fault. It's the rich people's fault. They're trampling on the poor. They're oppressing the poor. They're causing heartache as they get richer. All of these types of statements and, and, uh, and well, there could be, and it potentially has been, or I wouldn't say potentially, but there has been over the course of history. Those definitely have been occasions like that. Is that a writing principle that's true across the board? I have to say, no, it's not a writing principle across the board. It's not rich people's fault that there's pain and suffering. Another one that's similar to that, perhaps, uh, is power-hungry leaders. They're always pushing for this idea of, of upping their worth, their nation's worth in this world. So power-hungry leaders cause oppression. They cause pain and suffering. Again, that could be true, and it is true in parts of our world, in certain countries in our world. That's definitely true, but it's not true across the board. You cannot take that truth and apply it to, to every nation or to every people across the board. It's just not uh, a reality for everybody. We're a long way from why God would, <laughs> the idea of why God would allow pain and suffering. I get that. Uh, perhaps we've not always had that perfect answer 
for people's questions about suffering. But Romans 8 gives us perhaps the greatest perspective on how we can live in light of the suffering that we will capitalize all four letters, W-I-L-L, the pain and suffering that we will endure, that we will face, right? So let's turn in our Bibles this morning, Romans chapter 8. We'll pick up where we left off last week, the next verse. (coughs) Follow along. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That sentence there alone is uh, a big part of why I think Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into a glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even when we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait with it for perser- with per- perseverance. Excuse me. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, For we do not know what we should pray, for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's just pause right there. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, uh, Lord, that will uh, guide and, and lead us and teach us how to follow you even in times of suffering. And so, Lord, even as we contemplate these things, uh, we pray that right now you would teach us and that we would follow after you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get started uh, this morning looking at this passage, I want to first look at three myths about suffering. Then we'll look at three ways that we can have hope in the midst of suffering. I was joking last week that uh, the sermon last week was brought to you by the letter P. Um, This week, the sermon will be brought to you by the number three. So if you're following along, if you grew up at all watching The Good Sesame Street, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, Oftentimes those episodes were brought by a letter or a number. So today the number is the number three, 
which is actually the number of perfection, which messes up last week's three P's sermon, if you're keeping track of the P's. Wow. I'll just move on. You guys follow along. All right, here we go. Myth number one. Here's a myth that's in our culture about suffering. If we live well, and if we will be a good person, we can avoid suffering. Anybody ever had that mentality? Right? Anybody ever heard that kind of idea? You know, hey, just just be a good person. It's going to be all right. You're going to be good. Right? So if this idea that if we live well, if we be, and if we end up being a good person, we can avoid suffering. I suppose there's a little bit of truth in that, perhaps. But it's not all-inclusive. It's not a blanket statement. The truth in it is this, is that Paul talks about another area, is that, hey, you're going to reap what you sow. You're going to reap what you sow. You go out and break the law. You go out and rob the gas station. You go out and, 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 and do uh, physical harm to somebody. You go out and do uh, damage to somebody's property. You go out and steal from somebody. Guess what? You get caught, you're going to pay the penalty. That's not suffering in regard to biblical suffering. That's paying the consequences for our sins. The big difference between consequences and enduring consequences and enduring trials where you're not necessarily culpable uh, for what's going on. The Apostle Paul assumes that suffering is part of the Christian life. There's a flat-out assumption. Go back to the very first verse that we started reading at verse 18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time on and on and on the apostle Paul says he didn't say well if we have sufferings or there might be sufferings or it's possible he just makes a straight assumption for I consider that the sufferings of this present time right verse 18 verse 21 is the next one that brings out the truth uh Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. So there's an assumption that that as great as what we can see outside in all of nature, as awesome as that is, and I've been to some awesome places on the earth, right? Some Out in the desert, up in the mountains, uh, I've rode snowmobiles in the top of the Cascades and in 20 feet of snow. It's 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 incredible. It's an adrenaline rush like you would never believe. Anybody drove over the North Cascade Highway? Raise your hand. If you've been over the North Cascade Highway, did you? Let me ask you this, because I'm going to tell them myself. When you were on the North Cascade Highway, did you ever go? Is there is there a place on the North Cascade Highway that you can go more than 60 miles an hour? Oh, we got a critic in the back. Don't listen to her. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. When you're on the North Cascade Highway, and there's like, you know, a groom trail on the road, they groom the road, but it's probably packed down maybe 10 feet deep. And when you get the snowmobile up to about 70 on some of those straight stretches, it's an adrenaline rush like you won't believe, right? And the, and the majesty of the Cascades and the whole thing, you know, climbing the peaks, you get up there, all of that, all of what you can see, all of what you guys saw when you were 
when you guys are out backpacking and, and wherever you've been, the oceans, you know, this last spring we had the, or earlier this spring we had the opportunity to go to Hawaii. It was crazy awesome. It, it, it was one of the best experiences we've ever had in life. It was, it was so much fun and it was just awesome to be there. All of that, all of that, as awesome as it is, as awesome as everything that we can see outside in nature is, it's interesting, the Bible says, because creation itself <coughs> also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. It's corrupted. I can't believe it. I was thinking about this week as I was studying for this. And, and you know, we have all this rain and, and on, all that goes on just makes the mountains awesome and super green and all of that. And guess what? The Bible says that, that, that there's corruption involved, that it's not perfect, that it's not whole. It's not the way it was created. It's hard to even fathom that truth. But Paul is making this straight-up assumption because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Even nature itself is corrupted. It, it can't even avoid the suffering. The next one, the third one I have on my list is verse 23. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. You know within yourself, the word says, that you're groaning to be set free from this tent. Now, let me tell you this. Some of us groan harder than others. I'm fasting, uh, fast approaching the zone where there's lots of groaning because the tent is breaking down. The body's breaking down. I'll let you in on another little personal secret. I have this goofy thing going on with my heel. My left heel feels like that there's a pocket knife inside of it. I don't know what it is. I thought, well, maybe if I just get in the tractor and sit on the tractor and or get in a semi, an air ride seat, maybe that would make it feel better, right? We're not walking around on Walking around on concrete is not good for me right now, but I have to do it. So every morning, my wife will con confess to you, I walk down the stairs like this because my left heel is hurting, and it needs fixed, and I'm groaning about it, right? I don't have time to have it fixed right now. If you do what we do for a living, you have to schedule these things up. Yeah. In the off-season, right? That's right. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting the adoption, the redemption of the body. There's something built within every person that is looking beyond the natural, beyond the natural to the supernatural. And there's some groaning involved with that. The next thing on my list is that Jesus... Jesus taught his, his disciples that they, will, that they will have suffering. I'll read to you from John 16, verse 33, where Jesus tells his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's not avoidable. Suffering is not avoidable. You can't just live well and avoid it. You can't just be a good person and avoid it. Myth number two. Myth number two. 
This one's interesting. Suffering always points to some sin that needs to be confessed. Spoke on that just a little bit ago. There is a little bit of truth in that myth. But you can't say that that's true across the board. You can't say that suffering always points to some sin. Suffering sometimes is the result of sin. But there's not a one-to-one correlation. There's not a one-to-one correlation between our suffering, our tribulations, and some sin that needs to be confessed. Uh, The number one book in the Bible on suffering, if you've read this book, you will uh, surely agree, the book of Job, uh, talks about all that this man in the Old Testament goes through in regard to suffering. He lost everything. He lost his family. He lost everything that he owned. He was allowed to be melted down to essentially just him and his wife. Right? Suffering. He suffered physically, financially, relationally. This guy suffered probably more than any other person in all the scriptures except for Jesus. But even in that, as the, the whole story gets started in Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And here's God's description of Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Was there sin in Job's life? God says that he's nobody like him, that he's blameless and an upright man. Jesus himself obviously knew that he would suffer unjustly. If you Write these verses down. They're all in the book of Mark. They're almost, uh, they are consecutive chapters and almost uh, identical verses. But Mark 8, 31 verse, uh, Mark 8, 31 and 32, Mark 9, 31 and Mark 10, 31 are all verses where Jesus talks about his coming suffering and betrayal. Was he sinful? We know that answer. Right? The one that stands out the most is where Jesus heals and teaches on suffering. In the Gospel of, nine, uh, Gospel of John, verse, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, tells us this. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned that this, this man or his parents that he was born blind? You want to talk about a cultural assumption? That's an assumption. They're just walking by, and here's, here's somebody with an issue. Wow. Teacher, what, what's, what's his issue? Is it his issue or his parents' issue? Who's sinful here? That was the natural assumption of that day in Israel. That if you had an issue, you were sinful. That if you, had, if you had something wrong, leprosy or blindness, maybe you were lame, deaf, whatever it was, that there was sin involved. We can get caught in that trap today if we're not careful. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, 
but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That's a powerful statement about what God wants to do in a person's life. It's a powerful statement as a rebuttal to the idea that suffering always points to some sin that needs to be confessed. And this verse, verse 3 in John 9, really points and leads us into Romans chapter 8. And we're going to get to that in just a second, but I first have one more myth. Myth number three, that we'll be able to find a silver lining behind the dark clouds. The Pollyanna effect that uh, is out there today, that, hey, just, you know, it's coming. It's going to turn around. You're going to see a silver lining. It's coming shortly, uh, uh, culturally speaking. And I think that there's a lot of people that use this phrase that don't even believe in this particular belief system or religion. But a lot of people throw around the karma word, you know, hey, karma, karma will come back around. You'll be fine, you know, or if, you, or if you're not going to be fine, it's going to come back and bite you, one or the other. I don't believe in all that. There's a whole, uh, I can teach on that at a different time. But um, there's a lot of systems out there that point to uh, this idea that we'll be able to find a silver lining behind every dark cloud. It's often actually how Romans 8.28 is viewed when it's out of context. When that verse is out of context, sometimes we can fall into that. And I want to be careful about the, the, the silver lining thing. Uh, that whole concept or encouragement. Because I don't necessarily think that encouraging one another and encouraging people that are suffering, that I, I think that we need to be able to, to, to rightly point to where that relief, where that help, where that's going, even if we don't experience it on earth. I think that we have to leave room for that. I know I'm going to get into that in a little bit. But uh, we do want to be encouragers. So I don't want to be too gloomy uh, and too dark clouded here. But oftentimes Romans 8.28 is is taken out of context. And there's times where we likely won't see all the quote-unquote good in this life. The good perhaps that we want to see. See, much of the good, according to Romans 8, will actually be revealed in eternity. Look back at Romans 818, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so what's happening now, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, future. See, it's a future thing. It's a future thing. Verse 24 is similar. Verse 24, for we we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Right? We hope into the redemption of our bodies. We're looking forward to it at some point in the future. But sometimes and and oftentimes it doesn't feel like it's a present reality. In verse 25, we eagerly await this hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We have to remember that there's oftentimes that that good is going to come down the road even if down the road means in eternity, in eternity. So we have to keep that in mind. We have to keep that in mind. We don't want to give people false hope. Like God has a great plan 
He has a perfect plan. But are people going to see the fruits of that always on this side in this life? Not necessarily. And that's why we point to the hope that we have within us, Paul says. So what does hope have to do with suffering? And how is suffering going to make us stronger? Uh, I like this idea. A good teacher uses every tool at their disposal to teach their students. We got teachers, we got retired teachers in here, we have homeschool teachers, we have public school teachers, we have public school administrators, and they all know and they would all tell you that every kid learns a little differently. Every kid has things that, that, that trigger them. Every student has a particular way or, or of viewing things and, and, and a way that they gravitate towards learning. Uh, when Robbie was a little guy, uh, we struggled getting him to read. And we actually hired a tutor, great lady, really gifted at what she does, and that was a blessing. So we had to adapt. We had to adapt and recognize, hey, it's, this isn't something that we can help solve. We need to bring in some outside help, so we did that. That was the first and probably the best thing we did. You know what the second best thing that we did was? You guys will really dig this. We just started putting hunting magazines in front of him. We started putting guns and ammo on the coffee table and on his desk. Guess what? He learned to read real fast because that was something that interested him, right? So you've got to adapt. A good teacher uses every tool at their disposal. And God is a great teacher. He's not just a good teacher. He's the best teacher. He's a great teacher. And he doesn't want to just change our circumstances, which a lot of these myths point to. It's just a change of our circumstance. But he, he, he wants to change our whole lives. He wants to change your whole life. He wants to change my whole life from what it was before I trusted him. So it's not just a slight tweak like sometimes we would use. And sometimes we want from God. We just want a slight tweak. I just, don't, I just, need, I just need a little help in this area. I'd, don't worry about that. I can take care of that. I, I don't need your help there. I just need it here. That's not what God's about. That's not the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that he would come in and he's going to completely overhaul you and me. That's the essence of the gospel. And in that overhaul, he will be glorified. So a, sw a slight tweak doesn't get it done. He's here to change our whole lives. So three ways that we can have hope in the midst of suffering. The first one, look at verse 28. It's really the anchor verse for this whole passage. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. What's God's purpose? What is God's purpose for you and for me? God does have a purpose. He does have a plan. The next verse tells us what that plan is. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and here's the purpose that he's working out in our lives. Here's what he's here to teach us today about suffering. 
is to be conformed to the image of his son. I mentioned a second ago, God wants to overhaul our lives and he wants to make you and I just like Christ, just like Jesus, right? And so he's going to do it. He's going he's to dig and he's going to root and he's going to paw around and he's going to dig into your life and into my life and he's persistent and he never gives up and he stays with us as long as it takes to continue to change us into the image of Christ. If we allow God to, to, to do that work and not run from it, because if we get on the run, then he's got to go to the work of reeling us back in to get back to digging and digging and digging down into the roots of our life to change us to conform us, Romans says, into the image of his son. That's the work that he has. That's his purpose. That's his plan. When people ask me why a loving God would also allow so much suffering, I respond this way. And I think it's actually the best way to respond to that question. I would respond some way this way. Though I don't understand it all perfectly, I do know that God has used suffering to shape me. Can you say that? God has used suffering to shape you? I will say that God has used suffering to shape me and to make me more like his son, Jesus. That's a testimony of what God does in the midst of suffering that nobody can refute. How can you refute somebody's testimony? Right? How can you refute somebody's testimony? You can't refute somebody's testimony. That's their experience. That's their understanding of what's happened to them. So it's irrefutable. So rather than getting all, uh, uh, you know, hypothetical about God and, and his loving ways and allowing suffering, make your answer personal. Make your answer personal. Talk about your experience. Talk about what God has done in the midst of the suffering for you. Talk about how God has changed you and changed, and I can say he's changed me in the midst of suffering. He didn't just allow us to run away from tough things. He didn't just allow us to, to not experience hard times. The death of a niece. The loss of grandparents. Some grandparents I didn't even know. Right? He doesn't allow us to just avoid suffering. And it's definitely not up to me being good, for heaven's sakes. If anybody's known me my whole life, they would say, uh, that's true. It's not up to you, Mark. Sorry. Right? But God has a purpose and a plan, and he uses suffering. Make your suffering a part of the goodness of God and testimony of what he's doing in your life. God uses all things to make us more like Christ. Sometimes, I get it. I get it. Sometimes that seems extreme. And sometimes it seems unfair 
in a sense that we see people around us that are a lot like Christ. It doesn't seem like they've had any tough thing happen to them. And other people that just struggle every day. It's a climb up a sandy hill and they just struggle and suffer and struggle and suffer. Let me remind us all of this truth in the Bible. Fairness left when sin entered. I, I, I grew up, we grew up telling our kids that. You want fair? Well, we have to dial back history to the Garden of Eden because that's the last time anything was really fair because that was the last time anything was perfect. We spent way too much time trying to create fairness just to keep people happy. When in reality, fairness left eons ago. I get it. Don't get caught in the trap of looking at somebody else that's either suffered less or suffered more. Concentrate on what God is doing in your heart and in my heart and in my life and your life, even through the midst of suffering. Second way that we can have hope in the midst of suffering. First one, God's going to use all things to make us more like Christ. Number two is similar to one of the myths. It's the backside, perhaps, of one of those myths. Is that my story will not end. Or <laughs> Sorry. My story will end uh, with the redemption of my body, in a way. My story is going to end. Not everything will be seen here on this side of eternity. That's what I'm trying to say. We join with all of creation awaiting the redemption of everything that has been marred by sin. Perhaps I'm talking about our story of suffering. We'll end with the redemption of the body. Romans eight twenty two and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. Paul got it. He understood it. He suffered tremendously. He was beaten. He was slandered. He was cast out of cities. He was stoned. He was whipped. He was left for dead. He was abandoned by his own people, cast out as a heretic. Nowhere else to go. He was put before the Romans who really didn't want to have to deal with it. But because he was a Roman citizen, they had to. So they had to make some choices in there. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by snakes. He had all kinds of adversity in life. All kinds of suffering. Before his conversion, Paul would probably tell you, my life was awesome on one way, in one way, physically. Because he had it all according to social and world standards of his day. But he also says, I'm cash that all in to follow Christ. And to suffer for Christ's sake. And to suffer for Christ's sake. He cashed it all in because it was all temporary. It was all worldly, in a sense. So he suffered probably more so than anybody. Of the disciples. Despite all that treatment. Paul says in the 1st Corinthians. Chapter 2 verse 9. 
But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that a crazy statement for somebody to say that suffered as much as he has for, for Christ? Uh, for, for a cause, I should say. It wasn't just a cause. It was for Christ. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. It includes suffering, I get it. But it also includes glory. It also includes eternity. The third one, the last one we'll have before we move on and close in worship is this. In the meantime, in the midst of the suffering, in the meantime, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. It's a great reassurance and comfort to know in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're not abandoned to suffer in in, in you know, aloneness. Our suffering doesn't happen in a in a vacuum. Not if you're a Christ follower. Right? Not if you're a Christian. The Spirit, it says, is right there to suffer and to uh, help us in our weakness while we suffer. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Perhaps he's talking about suffering. How do we pray in regard to suffering? Right? But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. When we don't even know what to pray about in the midst of your tough time, in the midst of my tough time, guess what the good news is? The Holy Spirit's there praying for you and for me well, we can't even hardly utter a word. We can't even hardly figure it out because the fog is so thick. The Holy Spirit's right there with absolute 100% clarity of mind and clarity of prayer. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And it's not just intercession that's about our circumstance. Like, Heavenly Father, I just, you know, I'm praying that that you just move glory out of this difficult situation. That, that's, that, that's not how those prayers go. The verse c- continues and says that the Holy Spirit is praying what? Make an intercession for the saints according to what? The will of God. He's praying perfectly because he's praying the will of God for you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your difficult time, in the midst of tragedy in the midst of tribulation. The Holy Spirit is praying perfectly for you. If we want to know where that help comes from, it's in the will of God. Not our own desires, not our own wants, thoughts, or ideas of relieving the pain and relieving the tribulation. No. Actually, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are praying for us according to the will of God. See, a lot of people want help from God. They, they, they want help, but we, I know this is true of me. There's a lot of times I want God's help, but I want it on my terms and conditions. 
I want it according to what Mark thinks is best because ah, you're a big God. You've got a lot going on. I can handle this, but I just need a little help, a little push up over the top in life. You know, just a nudge. I want it on my terms and conditions. We can all say that that's true because it's true of everybody. We want God's help on our terms and conditions. It doesn't work that way. That's not the true gospel. That's not a life that's transformative. That's definitely not what Jesus and the Holy Spirit are praying for, for you and for me. God doesn't work that way. That's why so many people cannot get over the idea of a loving God in the midst of suffering. And essentially, essentially what they want is they want solutions without the solver, peace without the peacemaker, and life without the life giver. They want the benefits. They want the bennies. That's a slang term. They want the bennies. They want the benefits without the whole package, without the life change without the leadership of God in their lives, without submitting themselves to the word of God, without coming under the authority of God's word and his will. People want the benefits. They want what God can do for them. They don't really want to join the team. And it's a sad reality that we see going on all around us, and even people that are close to us. Even people that are close to us that have, that have at one time perhaps it had all of the appearance that they were following God and today have none of that appearance, no fruit on the vine. I spoke about that in the last message. The reality is, is that, that, that <clears throat> the assurance that we have in our faith in, in Christ is not linked to a one-time prayer or a throw your stick in the fire at summer camp. That assurance comes over the course of our lives as we follow Christ daily, as we see him change us daily, as we see God in the good seasons of life, in the tough seasons of life, in the spring of life, in the winter of life, changing us and growing us. And as Paul says in Romans 8, conforming us, or in other words, putting spiritual fruit on your limbs of your life that are just like Christ. So it's not the fruit that it used to be before I was a believer. It's the fruit that God builds in me now that I am a believer. And that assurance comes over that long haul. God didn't create suffering, but it is a byproduct of the fall of humanity into sin. That's what a lot of people don't get. They don't understand, so where did suffering actually come from? Well, we've said this many times. The first eight, nine, ten chapters in the book of Genesis is the foundation for the whole of the Bible. We see that right in the get-go in chapter 3 where this all took place. 
right? So God didn't create it, but he did allow it. It's a byproduct of the fall of Adam and Eve. But we also know that that can't be an excuse for us, that I can't say all of my issues go back thousands of years to two people I've never met. And I have to stand before the Lord, and you have to stand before the All of mankind has to stand before the Lord to give an account. Those that are in Christ are given an account of being in Christ. Those that aren't give an account for the whole list. The ways of God are uh, incredible. Satan tempts man into sin. I'm kind of giving a quick run through of all that I'm kind of summarizing here. Satan tempts man into sin. Scared humanity is now needing rescued. We see that in Genesis 3, first sign of the seed to come with a capital S. Throughout history, God continues to point to this rescuer. And Jesus comes down. Jesus comes and does for what mankind what no one, and I capitalize that in my notes. Jesus does for mankind what no one on earth, no one throughout history has ever done. Nobody. He does for mankind what no one ever could. He frees them from the penalty and the power of sin. And rescues those who are willing to trust in him. And he empowers them. How are we empowered? We're empowered to think differently. To respond differently. To live differently. To be more like Jesus. And to hope more. While we endure suffering. There's not an escape clause for suffering. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're empowered to think and to live and to respond more like Christ. The only right way to understand a loving God and suffering world is to believe actually what the Bible says and to believe that it's true. There is no other explanation. There is no other explanation for the question. How does a loving and just God allow so much suffering in the world. There's no other rational explanation other than to believe what the Bible says is actually true. The very thing that the enemy wants and used to harm humanity, God actually turns the tables and uses to produce good in his people. That's the craziest thing of the whole thing. Because in and of ourselves, we don't suffer well at all. We've talked about this in past and in previous uh, sermon series, especially through the book of Exodus, that we, a lot like the Hebrew people, we don't suffer real well. We try to out-medicate, out-run, uh, out-everything. You fill in the blank. When it comes to trials and tribulations, what is your knee-jerk reaction to suffering? And that's what you're going to go to the next time that you're pressed, if you don't embrace what the Bible says is true about suffering. That's what you'll go to. That's just a fact of humanity. When we are pressed to the limits, we will go to whatever baseline we believe is actually true. 
But God uses the very thing. He flips a script on Satan, uses the very thing that Satan used to bring harm to you and to me and to all of humanity. And God flips that script and says, you know what? All right, you want to bring in suffering? You want to bring in sin? You want to bring in tough things? Guess what? I'm going to use that to produce good in the people that would trust in me. That's what's insane. I still can't hardly get my head around it. But it's true. It's absolutely true. That was Joseph's testimony in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And why he could say when he finally met up with the whole of his family, the whole of his family that was used by the enemy to create so much pain, so much torture, so much heartache and misery in Joseph's life, Joseph had the right perspective. He had the right perspective on suffering, where he says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, But as for you, talking to his family, talking to his brother specifically, who got it all started, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. That's the right perspective on suffering at the end of it all. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What Satan means for evil for you and for me, God can use that very thing, that very circumstance, that very tough thing in our lives, and he produces good. Are we willing to wait for it? Are we willing to endure? Are we willing to keep our hope in the the reality that, that we will see the other side of the mess someday? Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Even if we don't see it before we die, doesn't mean that it's not true. As Paul says in Romans 8, you're going to see it in glory. You're going to experience it in glory. Hang tough. Stay in there. Paul says, I get it. I mean, these are my paraphrased words for what he would say. I get it. I totally understand what, what, what you may be going through, Roman believers. I get it. Stay in there. God's got a plan. He's working it out for good for those that are called by him. The truth is in our culture, suffering is where many, many people have jumped off the God train. Many people. Three questions as we close, and I'll ask the worship team to come on up now. Three questions as we close. Are we embracing, not because we're weird and like suffering, because we somehow want to, you know, be known as a sufferer, but are we embracing what God is doing in the midst of our suffering, or are we falling to the temptation to avoid it? There's a lot of ways that you can fall to the temptation to avoid it. You can try to out-medicate it. You can try to out-drink it. You can try to out-drug it. You can try to smoke it away. You can try to gamble it away. You can try to TV it away. You can you fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. Are we trying to avoid it by escaping the reality of suffering? 
are we embracing it from the perspective of God has got something good here? I need to see what that is. I need to find out where this is going to go. And I'm willing to endure because Christ endured for me. And so I'm willing to go there. I don't like it. I'm not weird that I'm uh, uh, denying that they're suffering or, or, or ignoring that it's true. It's not, a, not that. And it's not all a Pollyanna, you know, type of a mentality either. But it's a true reality that, that it's going to happen. It's a true reality that's going to happen and that God is going to use it for something good and by that grow us in our faith. Second question, do we believe that God is working a good plan for those who are his? If we can't believe that, uh, I'll be really bold and say this whole sermon will mean nothing to you. If we don't believe that God's working out something good in our lives, despite if it's we're in a high time, a low time, or any time, if we, if, if we can't even get there, today doesn't mean much other than you get to see people and sing some good songs and you have to endure <laughs> my speech. Do we believe that God is working a good plan for those that are his? The last one, are we willing to believe in faith that perhaps many can be rescued through our suffering? Are we willing to believe like Joseph believed? Not that he didn't have tough days. Not that he didn't have anguish. I'm sure he did. I imagine an Egyptian prison, a couple stints in an Egyptian prison, would make Geiger look like a country club. Right? So a couple stints in an Egyptian prison is no fun. So we can't deny, and I don't think that Joseph would deny that he had a tough go at times. But his perspective was so much bigger, so much grander than what was going on right at the moment. So if you can get to this spot, and if I can get to this spot in my walk with the Lord that, hey, hey, I'll go through tough times because God's got a great plan, and guess what? The benefit is, the real benefit, not the benefit of just avoiding circumstances, the real benefit is, is that a lot of people are going to be affected by, what I, by why I'm, what I might go through. I've shared this story several times. I'll just give you one realistic benefit that we've experienced in the death of our niece, Shea, 15 years ago. She'd be 15. Oh, she'd be driving. 16? I'm getting the 6 from mom. There you go. 16. One six. A driver. The benefits continue to this day in as much as we lost track how many nurses, how many people surrounded by that, uh, that were around that whole situation 16 years ago came to faith in Christ and are continuing in that faith. Like, I don't know, more than a dozen? Closer to two dozen, probably? Because of what God did in, in, in that little baby. What God did in the testimony of a family willing to follow him through one of the most agonizing suffering times that you can imagine. 
Yet people came to Christ. People came to Christ. But God meant it for good in order to bring about to this day to save many people alive. Are we willing to believe in faith that perhaps many can be rescued through our suffering? Because when we suffer well for Christ, He is going to grow us and strengthen us and encourage us. You can't deny the reality of what happens when we understand and live inside of the circle of the perfect prayers of Jesus and the perfect prayers of the Holy Spirit on our behalf, on our behalf, and we soak that up regardless of our circumstance. That's why suffering makes us stronger. That's why suffering right makes us stronger. I don't know what the future is going to bring for our culture. Uh, I'll tell you, my two cents worth of perspective, the trajectory is probably not good. I wish it wasn't so. But like prior to the Revolutionary War and prior to the Civil War, we need another great awakening. We need another great awakening where people will rise up and follow Christ. It transformed people around the globe. Primarily U.S. and and the U.K., but around the globe. And I believe it's true. I believe that we need a great awakening like none other. And there was powerful things that happened on the heels of both the first and the great awakening. Revolutionary War, the Civil War. What was the result 20, 30 years down the road? Wasn't perfect peace for our country? In fact, those early years and those mid-1800 years were actually really difficult years. But there was this sense. There was a sense of freedom. And in a spiritual sense, when there's that type of uh, of reformation in the hearts of God's people to be wholly sold out for him to be all in not toe in the water cannonball in for Christ let's use that term means that summer's almost here who doesn't like a good cannonball into the water everybody does let's cannonball into Christ regardless of what those waters bring. He's right there with us. He's praying for us. He uses your suffering, your difficult situations to make you stronger, to bring about His good purposes in your life. We need to be sharing that with our kids. We need to be teaching our kids the best best possible advice that Tammy and I ever got raising our kids about suffering was to not shield them from what was going on with their cousin. But to parent them right through every difficult time. Don't avoid it. Don't shield your kids from tough things. Appropriately teach and train and bring them up in the ways of the Lord, just like the Scripture says. You can't do that if you're going to shield your kids and, and, and not teach them what the Bible says 
We might as well take a big chunk of it and tear it out. Say, well, here, just use what's left. Teach and train them about suffering and why and what God's doing. All of these truths are just as true for them. All of these, these three myths are stuff that they will naturally gravitate towards in their culture if they're not warned about it. Meet it head on. Teach them straight up. This is the reality of where things are. But God has a good plan for us as a family. God has a good plan for you as, as a young person. God has a, an awesome plan for you, high schooler and college kids and young adults. He's got an awesome plan. Go for it. Go for it. Don't, don't, be, don't be bogged down because of what our culture's doing. God has a good plan for you. Embrace it. And part of that plan is to suffer. I get it. I understand. Suffering is not going anywhere. It's not, it's, not, it's not not moving forward. It's simply understanding who God is and how he works and trusting in that and relying on him when we can't see because the fog is so thick. He is the perfect personal GPS for you and for me. He will not fail. He will take you right through the fog. We trust in him while we suffer. Amen? Let's worship the last song.